Today, Talk 10 Tuesday is sponsored by Ipspalooza. Get ready to conquer the 2024 ICD-10 code changes with expert guidance. Click on the link in the comments panel to learn more. We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Eric Reamer for September 26, 2023. Today, Dr. James Kennedy will report on a new ICD-10 code about muscle wasting. Lori Johnson has all the latest coding news. Dr. Julia Ogarte Hopkins reports on the role of the pediatric physician advisor. And Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and our very own Speaker of the House, for now, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, and there won't be a, a government shutdown here as far as I can Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everybody. And welcome to the 570th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and good morning, Erica. And Erica, welcome back. You were missed last Tuesday. Thank you, Chuck. And I'm not going to... Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm not going to ask that we vote you out. So, buongiorno, Chuck, and everyone else. I had an awesome, an awesome holiday in Italy, and I would also like to wish Shana Tova to all my Jewish listeners. Oh, very good. That's true. Yeah. And again, uh, welcome back, Erica. As you heard Clark Anthony announced just a couple of seconds ago, our good friend Dr. James Kennedy is with us today. He's going to be reporting on an ICD-10 code that could be a challenge for coders. Yes, I'm intrigued to hear what he has to say. He always has great insights. Yes, he does indeed. And so what's your talkback segment about this morning, Erica? I'm going to talk about some interesting points I found in the third quarter of Coding Clinic. Excellent topic, Erica. We look forward to hearing your talkback segment. And folks, now is the time for the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. Today is September 26, and the new fiscal year starts on October 1st, 2023, which is this Sunday. In preparation for the new fiscal year, I thought I would review my top 10 tasks to prepare for the new year. You can see this list in my article that's published on ICD10Monitor.com. The first is review the new ICD10CM PCS codes with coders. Also scheduling a coding audit um, to validate the accuracy. And again, just a, I think it's just a good idea to do some checkup uh, on a periodic basis to check accuracy and catch any of those issues. Second is to update or create facility-specific coding guidelines. That includes identifying the new technology add-on payments that are utilized by your facility plus where is it documented? And maintain a copy of the previous version to be utilized with any performed audits with the associated time period. Identify procedures, inpatient procedures that are to be coded with PCS. Address social determinants of health to be coded, because remember with October 1st, homelessness will be a CC. And also specify in your coding guidelines which documentation will support those codes. Number three is remember that the pandemic is over. So what that means, and you can find this in the official coding guidelines, the screening for COVID should be coded as Z11.52. So those are for the pre-ops, 
Um, if the patient is moving from the hospital to perhaps a skilled facility or assisted living where they're doing a check on their COVID status and they've not had any exposure to COVID. Only patients with actual exposure to COVID are now coded as Z20.822. With the release of a new booster shot, most of the patients will be partially vaccinated now, which is Z28.311. Number four is review the DRG changes with the inpatient coders. There were major changes in the circulatory MDC, which is MDC5. So you want to make sure that they're aware that those changes have occurred. Number five is review um, the inpatient psychiatric facility, skilled nursing facility, and inpatient rehab prospective payment changes, because those will also occur on October 1st, 2023. Number six, review the changes to the coding guidelines. The definition for a reportable diagnosis was updated to include clinically significant. So you should discuss this, um, how, what's your interpretation of clinical, clinically significant means to you, and how does that impact your CDI staff and your coders? Seven is set departmental or personal goals for the year. I think it's always a good idea to, you know, what do we want to accomplish this there this year? Is there um, some new service that you're offering that you want to make sure is getting coded correctly? Has there maybe been a coding review that hasn't um, or provided some areas of weakness and you want to improve those? Um, so set goals. You can have set departmental goals personal goals, and something to work for. Number eight is become active in the denial process. I think that reading the denial letters is very educating. You learn a lot by seeing the payer's viewpoint and what they see the documentation and how they believe um, the case should be coded. And it also, it provides, especially for those clinical validation denials, for the coders, I think seeing the clinical side of it is really good. Number nine, provide education to the providers. Um, review what the documentation issues have been. And my recommendation is I would break this down into smaller groups, meaning let me talk to orthopedics about what I've seen from an orthopedic standpoint. Let me talk to um, the hospitalists about some of the general issues that you've noticed in the documentation. And you can provide some information about um, what has changed from a coding perspective. And the last but not certainly not least is make sure you celebrate your success. I think that we can wear staff out by always finding what's wrong. And I think it's important as a leader to celebrate also what has gone right. So lots to look forward to in the coming year. And next time I talk to you, it will be fiscal year 24. And with that, Erica, back to you. Thanks, Lori. I have actually a couple of quick comments. Um, although the pandemic has been, the, 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 the emergency, the public health emergency has been declared over, we, there's still a lot of COVID out there. I just had a um, 
a get together canceled. And my husband, uh, he so far he he thinks it's just a cold, but uh, we'll see. Um, and the other thing is when you talk about uh, contact with, um, it's a- actual, like known or suspected. So if somebody says, you know, like I think I might have been exposed to it, that actually would no longer be screening as well. So. Um, thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. Now available on demand is the three-day webcast series you need to hear to remain compliant with the 2024 inpatient prospective payment system. It's the IPS Coding Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. During this exclusive three-day summit, you'll learn about the important changes associated with the 2024 IPPS, including new ICD-10-CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Listen and learn with the IPS Coding Summit. That's the on-demand IPPS Coding Summit produced by ICD-10 Monitor, now available on demand at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Thanks, Clark Anthony. And folks, be sure to register to listen to this remarkable on-demand three-part webcast on the 2024 IPPS Coding Summit. Here now with a very special report is our very special friend, Dr. Julian Ugarte Hopkins. And good morning, doctor. Hi, everybody. Hello, Chuck. I am here to talk about physician advisors who work particularly with pediatric populations. And now, while I have this discussion, please note that you don't necessarily have to have a background in pediatrics, just like adult population uh, physician advisors don't have to have an internal medicine subspecialty. But for certain, there are many aspects of this role which actually are very specific to those who do have some history or some training in the pediatric populations. So just as the role of physician advisors has come to the forefront of the healthcare world over the last decade and a half, so too has the subset of pediatric physician advisors in recent years. Their expanding ranks and the critical developments nationwide affecting hospital pediatric units and availability of pediatric services now makes discussion about the importance and future of this role unavoidable. Pediatric services have never been considered financially impactful. Without routine, profitable, diagnostic, and preventative procedures like colonoscopies and cardiac catheterizations, as in the adult population, and the harsh truth that Medicaid and managed Medicaid plans notoriously pay pennies on the dollar for reimbursement of services, the overarching understanding has been that the pediatric cost of care will essentially break even for health systems. However, as hospitals close their pediatric units and cut back on their outpatient services, it's clear that getting paid less than expected for services provided is even worse than being paid what's expected. While pediatric medicine is advancing year over year, our nation's hospital's capability to provide this level of care is dwindling due to insufficient payment. There's no side-by-side comparison with the adult counterpart when it comes to many aspects of patient care, from clinical presentation and clinical trials 
to treatment modalities and FDA-approved pharmaceuticals, there often are stark differences or even a true lack of comparative data. One impactful example is the content of common clinical guideline criteria used by case and utilization managers and payers for statusing patients. While they may have pediatric-specific criteria, there often is nothing which even mentions major treatment pathways, which are usually only seen in pediatrics. Additionally, it's very common for payer medical directors to misidentify the major factors of a case and try to fit complicated diagnoses into simplistic conditions. Hospitals which have pediatric departments need physician advisors with pediatric expertise in these instances. The issue is not simply having internal staff who can appropriately identify patients meeting criteria for inpatient status, but who also have the ability to explain the reasoning to a payer medical director who lacks this expertise. Top-hitting diagnoses in hospital pediatrics are not really different from the adult world, including sepsis, Erica, I know that's one of your favorite topics, acute respiratory failure, and malnutrition. However, pediatric training and experience are required to ensure the subtleties of identification, stabilization, and treatment is completely illustrated in the documentation captured by the coders and appreciated by the payers. One of the key roles physician advisors play is to maintain the financial health of hospitals so they can maintain the health of the communities they serve. It's high time health systems recognize the pediatric subset of these communities and the critical needs they require to grow up and develop into the educators, artists, change makers, and even medical professionals will all rely on and be inspired by for generations to come. That's all for now. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you very much, Dr. Julian Ugarte Hopkins. There's a new ICD-10 code that uh, comes effective next week. And with the details is our good friend, Dr. Jim Kennedy. Dr. Kennedy, it's all yours, sir. Thank you very much, Chuck. And good morning, everybody. I'm so grateful to be with you today. What I'd like to talk about is e 88 uh, E88.A, which is a new uh, ICD-10 code for muscle wasting syndromes due to an underlying cause. Now, in, in this code, there's also a subheading of cachexia due to an underlying cause. To help prepare you for this, I would like to ask that you look at the emails that you've gotten regarding Talk 10 Tuesday and also in the chat box regarding the, what the definitions of, of muscle wasting disease is. I think you're going to find it surprising that muscle wasting is much more common uh, than what's been documented in the record. And capturing this is, in my opinion, uh, uh, one of the top CDI priorities with the new ICD-10 codes that will go into place October the 1st. So if we, the broad category for this is muscle wasting. Notice that this is muscle wasting, not fat wasting. Muscle wasting has three major components or four major components. First, the, the main heading is that there can be muscle wasting that is acute in nature 
Oh, and this can be due to sepsis. This can be due to trauma. I would say that the critical illness myopathy uh, that occurs with sepsis would qualify as a muscle-wasting phenomenon. And there's also a deconditioning that occurs with acute illness that I would say that if we look at the underlying criteria, that would also be considered to be a muscle-wasting. So if we have patients that come in that are relatively functional, but then become frail after a hospital admission. I think that in my opinion, the light bulb should go on as to was there some sort of muscle wasting as a result of the critical illness uh, that the patient had that would want to be assessed. Then we have to look at the chronic conditions uh, that can contribute to this. And these are brought, uh, this is in three major categories in my mind. The first is called sarcopenia. Now, sarcopenia is a relatively new word. This did not meet, this did not enter into the clinical lexicon until 1986. And sarcopenia is just simply a muscle, muscle loss due to aging. And we've seen this in our parents and grandparents whose muscles were becoming thinner. Uh, we noticed that their gait is impaired, their inability to get around, and those sorts of things. Sarcopenia is a tremendous contributor to uh, morbidity and mortality in older, uh, in older folks. And we do have a code for sarcopenia, even though it is, it is not used very much because a, it's not recognized. B, it doesn't affect any of the risk models that I'm aware of, MSDRGs, APRDRGs, HCCs, Alex Hauser, and the like. But nevertheless, the recognition of sarcopenia uh, is an essential element. Number two is cachexia. Now, cachexia is defined as a muscle wasting that occurs in the setting of chronic conditions that is not reversible or completely reversible with nutritional therapy. Notice again, this is muscle wasting, plus or minus fat wasting. I can be morbidly obese and, be, and have cachexia because the issue is with the muscle, not with the fat. So you may have a denial from someone saying, well, that patient has a normal body mass index or an elevated body mass index. They can't be muscle wasting or they can't be malnourished. That's not true. The clinical criteria state that you can have uh, uh, cachexia and even malnutrition uh, as it relates to the muscle wasting phenomenon. Last but not least is malnutrition. Because we do know that malnutrition affects not only fat, but also affects muscle. If we look at the 2012 Aspen criteria, uh, notice that muscle wasting is, is very much a part of this. So one of the things that we want to be sensitive to is, is being certain that we document this in the record and get the underlying cause. In MSDRGs, unfortunately, E88.8 is not a CC, whereas unspecified cachexia is. 
we nevertheless still want to capture it because we want CMS to correct the CC designation and to make it at least equivalent to cachexia. In APR DRGs, uh, uh, E88.A will be in number two. My guess is that in the Visient model, just like cachexia, we will find that cachexia is higher weighted uh, than malnutrition in the Visient in the Visient thing. So if you're in an academic medical center that uses Visient, check with your Visient rep, look at the uh, look at the clinical database, and get yourself oriented to capturing the cachexia. How do we solve this? I think that. Uh, Malnutrition dietary workflows need to not only address the aspirin criteria or the GLIM criteria, there needs to be a serious attention paid to sarcopenia, uh, to cachexia, and recognizing this both on the inpatient and outpatient basis so that we can then address this according to the literature that's currently developing. Again, references for this have been posted in the chat. Please look at your invitation uh, for Talk 10 Tuesday. We hope that you'll be able to uh, address this at your facility. Thank you so much, and I turn it back over to you all. Thanks, Jim. That was Dr. James Kennedy, the president and founder of CDIMD. When your facility is faced with tight budgets, the folks at MedLearn are here to help with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Keep your team trained and in the know with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. This web-based platform can help you make an impact on your revenue without breaking the bank, so you can focus on what matters most, patient outcomes. For a single, low annual subscription, all your teams will have convenient one-stop access to the complete libraries of three trusted brands, MedLearn Publishing, ICD-10 Monitor, and Rack Monitor. One low monthly cost, unlimited access, and all the CEUs you need. It's the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Increase your knowledge with workable coding solutions and actionable answers so you can focus on patient care with the MedLearn Media Resource Center. Now's the time for a very popular segment here of Talk Ten Tuesday. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. The American Hospital Association Coding Clinic 2023 third quarter recently came out. There was a question regarding post-molar pregnancy gestational trophoblastic disease slash gestational trophoblastic neoplasia, GTD, GTN. And the provider's final diagnoses were stage 3 GTN, multiple bilateral metastatic nodules of the lung, adnexal mass, and presumed vaginal lesion. The questioner noted that malignant hydatidiform mole codes to D39.2 neoplasm of uncertain behavior placenta. They wanted to know if this was appropriate if the patient has metastases. So the coding clinic's answer was to code C54.8, malignant neoplasm of overlapping sites of corpus uteri and the individual metastatic sites as well. Their reasoning was that since the malignant GTD, GTN had metastasized, neoplasm of uncertain behavior is not appropriate and the malignant neoplasm code should be used instead. So this advice confused me and I wanted to go over it with you guys. So first, let's get neoplasm of 
unspecified behavior out of the way. This phrase means no one specified whether the neoplasm was benign or malignant. That information may have been available and not documented or may not be available yet. So if a provider documents neoplasm or tumor, the coder picks up unspecified behavior. They use the table of neoplasms to get the site-specific code. This is not applicable here, obviously. Okay, so uncertain behavior, on the other hand, is specifying. There are two scenarios in which this classification fits. The first is when the pathologist is stymied as to whether a particular tumor has both benign or malignant characteristics. They've scrutinized tissue under their microscope and they're just unsure what the morphology is indicating. The pathologist will include in the report of uncertain behavior. The other situation uh, is when a specific type of pathology has the potential to become malignant, but it can't be predicted whether this patient's lesion will transform. These conditions often have the word borderline in them. So um, lymphomatoid granulomatosis, borderline ovarian mucinous tumor, and follicular thyroid tumor of uncertain malignant potential are considered neoplasms of uncertain behavior. These are often alternatively referred to as tumors of uncertain malignant potential. In ICD-11, the titles state of uncertain or unknown behavior. A hydatidiform mole develops in the uterus, but originates from gestational tissue, cells that would normally produce the placenta. It's also called a molar pregnancy. There is rapid and often abnormal cell growth. Most cases of gestational trophoblastic disease are benign, but there is the possibility of progressing to a malignancy. There are four main types of cancer, GTN, which can result from GTD, but we're going to focus on two of them. Invasive or malignant hydatidiform moles, also known as choreoadenoma destruens, are cancerous, but do not usually spread outside of the uterus. The most aggressive form is choriocarcinoma, which often does metastasize. It's a little perplexing why a condition which is known to be malignant, that is, malignant hydatidiform mole, is categorized by ICD-10-CM as a neoplasm of uncertain behavior, but it is. Coding Clinic's point was that once the GTN spread beyond the genital organs, it is no longer considered uncertain behavior. It's declared itself. Their coding advice was incorrect, however. The correct code for this patient should be C58 malignant neoplasm of placenta, not C54.8 malignant neoplasm of overlapping sites of corpus uteri. The involvement of the uterus is by spread of the cancer into the muscle layers, but the malignancy malignancy arose from placental trophoblastic cells. Moving on, there are a couple of other important coding clinic rulings in this issue, which I would like to bring to your attention. They rectified the lapse of crosswalking HFIMPEF, heart failure with improved ejection fraction, which arose when they addressed HFRECEF, heart failure with recovered ejection fraction. HFIMPEF may now be coded as diastolic heart failure. Medical cannabis 
use does not code to an F12 code indicating mental or behavioral disorders due to psychoactive substance use. It is captured as Z79.899, other long-term or current drug therapy. As always, I recommend you read the coding clinic issue yourself. There may be other clinical scenarios which relate to your practice, and you should always um, consider the the potential for writing them a question um, with your uh, information so that you can get a real, you can help them improve the um, advice and get your advice back as well. So that's it for me, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Erica, very much. That's an excellent topic for your talk back. And uh, folks, that is going to be wrapped for this, our 570th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Dr. Juliet Ugarte Hopkins, who substituted today for Tiffany Ferguson, Laurie Johnson, and Dr. James Kennedy, who reported our lead story. And a very special thanks to you, Dr. Erica Reamer, for co-hosting these Talk 10 Tuesdays, and welcome back. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you, everybody. Have a great week. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.